Welcome to another episode of the Mission Daily. I'm Ian Faison. And I'm Chad Grills. We are joined by a special guest. Sarah, how's it going? Good. It's going great. So we're going to start off not with the lightning round, but with a little bit about your background. Could you tell us uh, your current role and your responsibilities here at Twilio? Yeah, sure. So I'm Sarah Varney. I'm the CMO here at Twilio. I've been at the company for about seven months, and I oversee all aspects of marketing from brand to product marketing to developer marketing to enablement. Prior to Twilio, I spent 10 years at Salesforce in product marketing, running uh, most recently marketing for Sales Cloud, their core product line. So what inspired you to get into marketing in the advertising world? One of my older sisters was an amazing artist, is still an amazing artist today. And I always kind of looked up to her when I was younger. And I remember she just would come up with these really clever things. It was uh, my mom's 50th birthday, and my mom's name was Marlene. And she made T-shirts that said 50 marvelous years. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, just all of that kind of uh, clever writing and slogans and advertising always was something that uh, really interested me from from a young age. So I think I was always kind of destined to get into this space. One of the things we talk about on the Mission Daily and generally all over the mission is the idea that you should use advertising and marketing in your own life, in your personal life, because if you use them for good, they can be fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we love that story. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, I think part of that is that it's all around you anyways, and it's in your head with the different jingles that we learned on TV growing up or, you know, save some time, call the general, like all these things that are like constantly in your mind. You're like, we should all probably learn a little bit. Like you should take intro to marketing in high school or something like that. So at least you know what's going on around you. But when does that kind of turn into, hey, I really want to do this for a profession and... Like, what were the kind of entry-level stuff that you were working on back then? Yeah, I mean, my um, my career took kind of a, a rambling road to get to where I am today. I actually started as an equities trader on a NASDAQ desk in New York. And I think, you know, every kind of role that I've had has prepared me for where I am today. I think that role, though very far removed from the creative elements of marketing, definitely taught me how to deal in a high-pressure situation and kind of roll with the punches, which is something that I think every marketer at a high-tech company especially uh, needs to have pretty core to their DNA. And then from there, I went into a business development role at E-Networks, the, um, the entertainment company. And that was a great bridge kind of between the marketing world and, and the finance world. I was, I was helping them evaluate new markets they wanted to enter and just getting exposure to how they were thinking about approaching some new spaces. At the time, it was, I, it was uh, 2005 or so. And so, I mean, we're, you know, Facebook was just out. I remember I got my Facebook account, I think, uh, when I was working at E. So, and and uh, or it was actually... Facebook MySpace days, I think, or maybe we're still just getting out of the MySpace phase. But anyways, we've come a long way is the point. And I think that piqued my interest into really working more directly with customers, thinking about, again, messaging, branding, advertising. And then that brought me eventually to my role at Salesforce. Were you selling at that point or were you, was it like, partnerships or just like opportunities? Like what was the, what did the role entail? It was a lot around partnerships and it was actually a internship role that I had while I was at business school, but I continued to work there through my, my second year of school. It was interesting things like E was thinking about how they could get to more captive audiences, like people who were sitting in hair salons. So could they have like a, you know, beauty TV channel that was in front of someone who had to sit there for two hours and get their highlights done. So just thinking about how they could get into new markets, figure out, you know, what the market opportunity was behind that was um, much more interesting to me than uh, my trading role where I was kind of, you know, watching a list of stocks all day. So 
and then ultimately ended up at, at Salesforce Marketing Software. And, you know, I was always probably a little bit skeptical getting into tech that it would be something that would be exciting and compelling for the rest of my career. And it was even from the trading desk, which you think would be one of the most exciting and stressful and, and crazy times, I had no idea what I was getting into yeah. with software. It's just been a tremendous experience to be in this industry in the time I've been in it. And I think what makes having a great role in marketing is always having something new to market. And there's you know no shortage of new things in high tech and in software. And so I think that's what's always kept my job really exciting. You know, it's really interesting about the idea of thinking of audiences like where they are. That's a really compelling idea because I think a lot of times marketers want to create the message, right? Like the, the message is the medium, right? But like where you are consuming that is just as important, right? And, and how you're consuming. We think about this all the time in the mission of like, if someone's listening to this in the gym or in the car or, you know, whatever, like, what is the utility of the thing that you're creating, not just the message? I, I, this is, I mean, this is a quick aside, but I think that the reason that some of like the really long form podcasts do so well, the hour and a half, hour 45, is because they're folks that, you know, used to listen to talk radio or whatever type of radio during the day. And now they can rip through like four or five podcasts at work, whether that's, you know, in the car or in the salon or wherever it is. How much in marketing, do you think folks are thinking about like where people are consuming that content? I think more and more so they are. I think people need to be thinking about how they're going to get the right message to the right person at the right time. And again, like how they're actually going to be able to consume it. I mean, that's a big part of what Twilio does here. You think about it, people don't want to pick up the phone to go and talk to a customer service agent. If they can solve it on text, they're absolutely going to do that. Yeah. And so I think you know, to build that ultimate customer experience, you've got to be thinking about all the different channels that, that your customer's interacting on. Early on in your career, and I guess kind of throughout your career, like what, what types of mentors and folks were you working with that really kind of helped you along the way? I always say I've learned as much from good bosses as I have from bad bosses. I think sometimes you learn what you uh, you know don't want to do in the future, but you know, keeping it on the positive. I've had exposure to so many amazing mentors and managers. I mean, most recently, obviously, at Salesforce, where I spent a lot of time. And a lot of them were not necessarily marketing-specific. Uh, there's a woman named Layla Seca who's been a huge advocate for equal pay at Salesforce and just broadly in the industry. I've been lucky to work with her for a number of years. Um, she's just someone that always kind of pushed me out of my comfort zone, encouraged me to take risks, you know, would push me out on stage when I didn't want to go and speak for however many thousand people. She said, you're going to do this. And she's just always, you know, had my back in that sense. There's people like uh, Mike Rosenbaum is another great mentor for me from Salesforce, just someone who's always put people first, spends probably, you know, 20 hours a week just talking with people about their career, even though he's got a really uh, you know, demanding job on the product team at Salesforce. And then my current boss, George Hugh, is actually from Salesforce, is now here at Twilio as the COO. And I'm not just saying that because he's my boss, but he's a fantastic marketer and you know, someone I learn something new from every day. And I think you know, the key part about George is he's always pushing me to prioritize by impact. Like, Don't just do the onesie-twosie things that are coming into your inbox because you know, they're urgent. Think about those bigger things that you can um, you can drive for the long term that are really going to have a bigger impact, and that's you know something he's really consistent about. 
It's the big rocks in the jar. Yeah. And then the little rocks go around the big rocks. Right. So that's really interesting. It's something that's so hard for people to do. And everyone that's listening out there right now probably could use extra tips or strategies on prioritization. Is there anything you can share? Maybe like a mental model or way you're thinking about it or maybe philosophy that George has shared or that you created? Yeah, to deal with that? and I, I I will admit up front I don't always follow my advice, but <laughs> I'm I, I'm guilty too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, I think you've got to get away from the inbox. Sometimes people manage their days so much by their inbox, and if if you let that happen, you're really letting everyone else dictate what your day looks like and what you actually are going to accomplish. I always have a running list for myself, really tactically, of hey, here are the big things I need to get done. Well, you know, what's the status? Are they urgent? Are they high? Are they you know medium priority? And then the impact too. I always am trying to think like, all right, where like where can I drive the biggest impact? Uh, and I just really try to keep my blinders on for the small stuff. I think there's two like kind of schools of thought that I always try to have with that. One is to mute your computer when you're podcasting. And the second thing, uh, no, the two schools of thought that I have with that are being able to what we do all the time, which is five second rule. Just do it. In, if you can't like, just do it in five seconds. Like if it takes five seconds, just do it right away. And then the other thing is, especially with people who want to join the mission, we get, we're fortunate enough to have a lot of people that want to join the team. And if you're only willing to send one cold email, like you're not going to get a job. Right. Right. Screen for it. Yeah. And like you have to provide value and do tons of other different things. But there's a lot of situations like that where we're all just crazy busy and we're, you know, slaves to the inbox. And that's just how it is. So, you know, things are going to fall between the cracks and the uh, conveyor belt never stops moving. I absolutely. I think I always say I used to say to my teams, like, if you don't build your own roadmap, you'll become part of someone else's. So you got to make sure that you're always kind of sticking to it. Let's talk about conferences. Mm-hmm. For a little bit, so obviously, you know, Dreamforce. You, you were there for. I mean, when was the first Dreamforce? Uh, I honestly am not sure. I want to say it was probably two thousand two, two thousand three. Uh, my first Dreamforce was two thousand eight. Okay, so you were probably there when it's like starting to hit its stride a little bit. Yeah, it, was it taking over all of downtown San Francisco at this point, or it was uh, not quite to that level yet, but we got there quickly. Yes. Like, were there kind of some just like lessons learned over the years of like how to make a great conference that you saw and that your team saw with how you kind of like created the Signal Conference and how that kind of came to be? One of the best methods to success at any conference, in my experience, is getting customers to talk with other customers or prospects. I think that that is the, and I say it to Every audience that I, where I speak, I say, you know, this is, this conference is not about Twilio, it's not about Salesforce, it's not about whoever, it's about connecting you guys to each other and getting all those best practices out there in mass that it might take you months or, or years to collect otherwise. And I think if you can build an experience around getting people to connect with each other and also getting people to connect with your product experts that they might not have everyday access to, you're going to walk away with a successful event. What do you think is the thing that you're most excited about for Signal this year? Uh, there's so many things I'm excited about. I, I just think uh, hearing from some of our customers and, and the ways they're transforming their space with Twilio is just always, it always blows me away. I've been a part of our roadshow for the last few months and have gone to Atlanta and LA and, and to Boston, a number of different cities, and just sitting down with customers. You know, I sat with someone who was in the IT group for the VA hospital network, basically built a notification application for people just to confirm their appointments at the VA, did this with four people in 
you know, four to six weeks, was able to get that up and running, has reduced his no-shows by something like 150,000 appointments. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so this is just helping veterans get the, the care they need by setting up simple appointment reminders. I can tell you that as someone who goes to the VA, I need I need the the VA of uh, of the East Bay to to set that up. Yeah. They do a great job. They're very thorough with their calls and emails. But I we need them to to use Twilio for the text messaging. I can tell yeah. you that. So the focus of uh, Twilio Signal is going to be on AI bots and the future of communications. Is there any specific speaker or person or panel that you're really interested in or excited to talk about? Across the board, we're going to have content for all different types of users of Twilio. We'll have content for our developer audience. We'll have content for uh, our heads of customer service. We have a brand new contact center product we're really excited about called Flex. We have speakers from all types of different companies, from someone like Marks and Spencer is a huge retailer out of the UK to the VA hospital I was just talking about to FedEx and then to all the kind of usual suspects here in the Valley from places like Lyft or Slack, just all the people who are really at the the forefront of customer communications and how you can think about leveraging all of these different channels today to, again, just create that end-to-end experience that really maps that particular content to the way the person wants to consume it. Moving on to marketing campaigns. Want to talk about some of the ones that you've been most proud of in your career and some of the worst ones in your career? Start with one you're most proud of. Sure. It's not necessarily a campaign, but I think it was an effort that took a lot of kind of selling internally and ended in a good result. It's always hard to build content that doesn't talk about your product. I think companies just naturally, they have just this reflex to say like, you know, we're going to change the way that you sell. And then you turn the page and it's like, buy this selling product. And so it's it's just kind of misleading the customer as to what they're going to get. And at Salesforce, I thought we had a huge opportunity, given our expertise in the sales space, to tap into some of our experts in our customer community and get them to talk about their best practices, whether it was in high tech or healthcare or small business or uh, big enterprise, and just get them sharing some of their experiences. So we built a website called Quotable, had very little Salesforce branding, and there was some hard hard and fast rules about it, no product. And it, basically, we wanted to make sure we were tapping uh, our internal experts, you know, members of our own sales team at Salesforce, external customers who had really had success in the sales space and, and had something unique to say in a point of view, or third, just industry experts. And we brought it together. I brought it to my creative team at the time. They're like, you're crazy. This, we don't understand how this kind of flows into everything else. But slowly, I convinced them that this was going to be a way to build more top of funnel interest. And um, we were able to to get it over the line. And then from there, we built it out into a a more integrated campaign strategy. So we had events that were branded as quotable. We had podcasts just like this that were focused on uh, the sales space. And this is one of those things where you know, we were talking at the beginning of this, this is one of those long bets that no one was going to see it pay off in the spreadsheet the next day. But I just by hook or by crook, got the team organized around it. And we consistently delivered content for a period of time that we could see the returns. That's so funny. I mean, do you I mean, you're preaching to the choir, because that's I mean, the mission is built off of that idea, or with with the way that we're presenting our podcast and like creating helpful content. But I think what is so interesting to me is how do you frame that as a leader to the person who 
has to, you know, approve it. I mean, like, they, you know, we, there's been a bunch of stuff. I think Harvard came out with the fact that the average CMO life cycle is like 18 months or something like that. So you're talking about a lot of times where if you're pitching something that's going to have monstrous gains in three years from now, um, there's worry, I think, that you might not even be around to see that if it isn't producing right now. Like, how do you get around that, like, right now-ism versus, like, long-term thinking? It's a great question. It's a hard one. I think that if you're not thinking about the long-term viability of something or the long-term strategy behind your marketing organization, you're going to be one of those people that doesn't last. And so, you know, it's a little bit, yeah, sure, you have to show some quick wins and show that you've got your act together and show that, you know, which way is up. But, you know, if you're constantly just going to be chasing things here and there, you're absolutely going to have nothing to show after 18 months. I won't say it was easy to get that project, you know, over the line. I think one way to do it, you can go one of two directions, very practically. You can go big bang and say, hey, here's this big, huge thing I want to do. It's going to cost you $10 million and I need 20 people to do it and all or nothing. If you don't give me the 20 people, we're not doing this. And sometimes that works. Sometimes it's a situation that's dire enough and people are willing to try enough. And, you know, the company's got deep enough pockets to just carve off that budget and you can go. But what I see more often work is to position it as a pilot. Hey, we're going to try this. We are going to figure out a way to invest in a strategic way so we can see impact and how if we could turn this on in a bigger way, it'll grow exponentially. But I found that in my experience, that has been the way to kind of get some of these things off the ground, I should say, without freaking out anyone too much and also without wasting too much time. Because sometimes if you're, you know, you're going to spend six months chasing budget that you may or may not end up getting. And that was essentially somewhat of the approach with Quotable. I'm like, hey, I'm just going to put this little landing page up with a couple articles. And as we got momentum and saw that it could work, we built it into more of a full-fledged experience that you know worked on multiple channels. What are some of the truths that you believe about marketing that might not be commonplace or might not be popular or just might be a little out there that you kind of see in the future of marketing as kind of being a big deal? One of my opinions that I don't know is widely held is just that demand gen is absolutely an art and science, in my opinion. And I found that sometimes the most analytical people are not always the best people at seeing demand gen more broadly. And that might be counterintuitive. You think, all right, demand gen is so numbers heavy and you need someone who can analyze all the conversion points at, at, you know, at all different points of the funnel. And that's absolutely true. And you definitely want someone who is, is metrics driven. But I also think you really want someone that's creative and can think outside of the box and read the tea leaves in that seat for you and your marketing organization. So I always use this analogy about a DJ at a at a club and you know you might have this dj that has figured out that if you play a song at x beats per minute the, the dance floor is going to be hopping he or she is so convinced in that formula that they play that same song over and over and over again it's uh, like shout at a wedding yes you play shout right People ymca gonna, yeah living on a prayer i don't know actually those are pretty repeated formulas for success for me but uh <laughs> yeah it's touche <laughs> but you can't play living on a prayer for four hours no exactly or shook me all night long. That's another one that's always at a wedding. Or journey. What's the journey? Uh, don't stop believing. Anyways, if you play don't stop sweet believing. Sweet Caroline. Sweet Caroline, another one. But I think, uh, you know, if you are if you play living on a prayer 20 times, you know, back to back, you're going to look up and the dance floor is going to be empty. And I think sometimes that's how demand generation leaders can operate. 
because they're like, all right, I'm not going to move away from this proven formula. And I think the best demand gen people are a little, they're very tuned into their audience and they're always thinking about how they can create the right mix of content or channels to constantly keep that dance floor crowded and going. And that takes a mix of being analytical, but also kind of having the vision to see like, all right, this might not pay off on the spreadsheet tomorrow, but I'm going to look up in a year, a year and a half and have this groundswell of interest for my brand that I might not have otherwise. Who's the person, I, gosh, I can't remember, who said that 70% of your marketing budget should be stuff that works, 20% should be stuff that you're not sure if it's going to work, and 10%, I don't even know, want to know what you're doing with it, <laughs> but just let me know if it does. I don't remember, but I remember we were talking about that research when we were uh, getting the show ready. Gosh, uh, I forget. Marketing trends. Yeah, I forget who that was. But somebody smart out there that will figure out a way to attribute. But that's the sort of thing is like, uh, it was, I think he was a CMO of, of some kind or a CEO where he's like, I don't even want to know what you're doing with 10% of the budget because it's probably going to be so weird or esoteric or dumb that I'm going to think it's a bad idea. But those are some of the things that yield ah. massive results. I didn't ask you about your worst campaign. What's the worst campaign you've run? So we were doing a campaign around hitting an in install milestone for the app exchange marketplace I worked on. It was two million installs, and I made a you know some creative that looked like the McDonald's one billion serve kind of like, <laughs> and it was like two million installs, which was cool. Like it was funny, whatever. But then I just took it too far. We had like a hamburger infographic, and I ended up like comparing like the layer of pickles to like our set of HR apps or something. I don't. It just was like as I look back, it was fun at the time, but it's something that I'm like, ah, it was probably a little bit hokey. So. I love it. Let's talk about creating one-on-one -on -one relationships. I think with the idea of like customer-centric marketing and customer success stories and a lot of this, like we're really focusing on the results that the customers are achieving, which is cool, which is like kind of what we should be doing, right? But how do you start to build that or maintain that one-on-one -on -one relationship with the customer so that like through the marketing and through kind of that relationship, it ends up like growing and developing in a way that is kind of beneficial. I have a couple different answers to this. I think it, a lot of it all centers around the language you actually use. I think it's easy to get into marketing jargon speak and to not actually write like you talk. I, I see that in written word and kind of ebooks or customer stories or whatever it might be. I also see it in presenting. I know when I get on stage, I try never to write down a script because if I do, I find myself using words like furthermore, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I would never say That's that true. sitting down yeah. talking to you guys right now. So I think it's easy to kind of fall into that trap of like making things very formal and, and, and buttoned up that way. So I think really focusing on the written language is important. I think also building as custom of a message as you can for that audience without making that audience too small. Uh, we have a lot of these debates here internally. Should we do an industry campaign? Should we do a regional campaign? Should we do campaign by buyer? Should we combine all three? And I think you just have to find that right balance to making it customized enough, but not so customized that you end up with not many people to actually market to. It just depends on your space and how many people you ultimately are, what your overall numbers look like. And it could be that finding those three people and building a custom message just for them is what's going to help you hit your numbers ultimately. But if you're in a business where you're driving tens of thousands of leads, chances are you're going to have to think a little bit more strategically about your resources and, and how you can break those audiences up to be customized enough, but not completely randomized. Sure. How do you generate word of mouth or think about 
generating word of mouth about Twilio, about what you're working on, but also just, you know, from customer to prospect, which is ultimately the most high yield potentially. I mean, I, I talked a little bit about how I think bringing customers and prospects together at events can be one of your hugest sources of lead gen. I think from a marketing campaign approach, always having an aura of uh, mystery has helped. I know with a lot of product launches I've done, I've alluded to what's coming without explicitly saying and, and having a countdown so people are kind of have some anticipation about what's going to be announced. And I found that um, taking that approach, it makes people more apt to share content and start talking about content. That's a great idea. And any ideas, too, on how to make a product remarkable? Or are there any case studies maybe you can share from Twilio where you didn't think that a customer would be remarking to another about the product, but they, they in fact are? Uh, I think Ryan Leslie is a great example of that. Uh, Ryan Leslie is a very uh, successful rapper and created his own app on Twilio called Superphone where he could engage with his followers and his fans one-to-one. And just from that, uh, a number of different other musical artists kind of came out of the woodwork and said, hey, I want a Superphone for my audience. So yeah, we definitely see examples of where just even the usage of an app on Twilio is, is sparking the idea in another customer's mind. Let's go into lightning round. Fast and easy questions. I'm scared. Fasten the seatbelts. Yeah. Uh, what app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? I love Instagram stories. I am a big Instagram story person, I will say that. I, I'm an avid user. Favorite time-saving tool? Favorite time-saving tool? Um, can Uber count? Sure, of course. Uber. Favorite team, sports or otherwise? Favorite team, I'd have to say Oakland A's. Go A's. Yeah, All right. Uh, favorite recent book that you've read? I read What's Wrong with Eleanor Ophelient. I don't think I've ever said her last name out loud, so I might be mispronouncing, but it was an awesome book about just this woman who struggled to connect with other people and met an individual that kind of unlocked her, her life. Cool. Favorite show that you're watching other than Game of Thrones? It's not coming back till 2019. I know. It's a big bummer for me. I love Nailed It. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this. It's on Netflix. It's basically, I have a mom with three kids, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of Pinterest competition that goes on, and people post these pictures of their cakes that are, you know, amazing. Nailed It basically makes you feel a lot better about yourself because. <laughs> They have these chefs come on and, and have, uh, you know, these ridiculous things that people have to try and recreate. And then, you know, they do a big unveiling and there's like a, you know, a gong is rung and they show their version of it. And it's just like all lopsided oh, and yeah. one eye's on, you know, like falling off. And, you know, it's, it's like great. Bart Simpson and it looks like, I don't know. A cyclops. Yeah, it's, it's great. <laughs> favorite one day getaway in the Bay Area? Uh, I love Napa. It's absolute favorite. Happy place. Thing you're most excited about for the future of marketing? There are a lot of things I'm excited about. I mean, it's funny, like, if I even think when I started back at Salesforce, there were so many channels that didn't exist. Retargeting didn't exist. Marketing on social networks didn't exist. Yeah. It's hard to even imagine what will exist 10 years from now. I think that whoever can come up with a way to really measure attribution from top to bottom of the funnel is going to be someone who is going to be a very wealthy person at some point. I think there's been a lot of kind of attempts at it, but we we don't really have a great solution there to, to really track someone throughout their entire customer journey yet. Totally agree. What's a place where p- people blow a lot of money, where marketers blow a lot of money? 
I think I see people waste money when they they don't plan and they don't have an integrated plan from the beginning. So I mean, just like silly things, you go and do a video shoot with a customer, and you don't take pictures at the same time, and then you want to go run ads online, and then you're like, oh, now I got to go back to this customer, and it's a whole day shoot again. So I think just a failure to plan can really create this kind of death by a thousand cuts scenario where you know little th- it might not feel that extreme in the moment, but over the course of a campaign, it can really add up and you could have been much more efficient and and actually use that spend instead of on creative to actually promote the content that you built. This is your lighting round, but I have to jump in there because I think that's so true. And we subscribe to the like whole Buffalo theory here at the mission. It's like, if you're going to do the work to get whatever it is, you should probably think about every single aspect of the content that you can use that for and use it in every single different way. Because I think it's a huge fallacy that people just consume content in one way. And I think for some reason, like people just tailor to one thing and it's like, well, like, Hey, we're really good at Instagram. So let's keep doing Instagram. It's like, well, there's a lot of people who, you know, don't want to read business content on their Instagram because they just want to scroll through it or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. I mean, thinking about how you take that ebook or that video and, chop it up and do a number of different series and, you know, use it over a course of months as opposed to just promoting it that one time. I think uh, if you're planning more up front, you're going to be much more efficient. Last question for lighting round. What does the future look like for Twilio? I think the future at Twilio is very bright. It's a really exciting time to be here at the company. Just incredible momentum. Every customer event I go to, people are really excited about all the new channels we're supporting, whether that's Line, which is uh, one of the most popular messaging services in Japan, or WhatsApp, which we just which we just announced support for yesterday. Working for a platform like Twilio, it's just every day there's something new, exciting because every day a new developer in the community is building something new with our technology. So, tons of upside here, and uh, it's a great place to work. Awesome! Thanks so much for for hanging out and being Thanks on so the much, podcast. Sir. Yeah, thank you guys. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.